I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. So earlier today, I talked with John Dickerson. Man, this guy knows politics and political history. So here's the background of why I liked this conversation so much. We're obviously in the middle of a political campaign that everyone says is unprecedented. There's never been a candidate like Donald Trump, never a candidate like Hillary Clinton, never a campaign like this one, never more negative, never, never, never. Well, how truly never before is this campaign? Are we really in totally uncharted territory? Is history, in fact, no guide at all? Does context matter? Well, John Dickerson just might be the perfect person to discuss this, you know his bio. He's moderator of CBS's Face the Nation. He's a Slate political columnist. And he also hosts an incredible podcast called Whistle Stop, Slate's podcast about presidential campaign history. Now he's published a new book of the same name, Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. Dickerson goes through the stories, I'm quoting his uh, blurb, the stories behind the stories of the most memorable moments in American presidential campaign history. And that's true. And uh, you'll listen to the conversation. And if you uh, find it interesting, you can order his book now at at Amazon or your local bookstore or wherever you get your books. But what's uh, great to me about this conversation and what's so smart about Dickerson's podcast and his book is that we're constantly told that we're at this end of political history moment, this time when nothing that's happened before matters and we can't possibly make sense of today's political realities. Now, some of that makes sense to me. I mean, it's factual. Trump would be the first elected president with no political or military experience. Clinton, of course, is the first woman presidential nominee of a major party. We've clearly never had a presidential nominee who tweets the way Trump does. The list goes on. But is there nothing to learn from the past? Is everything about this election new ground? Personally, I doubt that. And Dickerson is the perfect person for that discussion. And it's not just his current roles. Dickerson grew up in a house where politics and news were central. His mother, Nancy Dickerson, was TV News's first woman star, as John wrote about in his outstanding memoir about his mother. He's an incredible source to help us try to make sense of this most incomprehensible election. Anyhow, I really think you'll like this conversation. I did. But before we get to the conversation, some questions. Who will win the White House? What can we expect from the political conventions this summer? What about the House and Senate? Well, people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now here's my conversation with another great political resource, John Dickerson. So uh, how many different projects do you have going on, John? I mean, you moderate <laughs> Face the Nation, Slate Political Columnist. You have at least two podcasts. 
uh, Slate's Political Gab Fest and Whistle Stop. Um, I'm sure there are others that I'm missing out on. You've turned Whistle Stop into a book. I mean, you're kind of coasting, don't you think? Uh, are you going to you know, finally pick a time to do something with your life so people stop talking about you? Well, there are the. There's all the time that's taken up with the manicures and the massages. Um, yeah. So, so the Twitter so feed is that. accurate. I mean, I, that 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 all was true. I, I doubted it. I didn't think that was a real, you know, feed of yours. But uh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I have. A, <clears throat> I also do something called the Fascination Diary, which is a, um, a podcast that I do, uh, sort of a short, informal podcast. Uh, in addition to the the pieces that I write for CBS, it's um, yeah, you know, the the problem is that. Um, in an election year, there's so much to talk about and and so much going on. And when I started the, the Whistle Stop Project in particular, there were all of these parallels. And it was sort of like, if you don't say it or do it now, it goes away. Um, so there's a, um, there's a kind of ur- urgency for me to um, get these stories out, have these conversations. Um, and so that that's what... Um, keeps that ridiculous schedule going, um, that and the forbearance of my family. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, you know, maybe they're just, you know, they're probably like, look, you know, dad, you know, uh, John, can you, can you go find something else to do? You're, you're, you're around. <laughs> Hanging around too much. Yeah. So the parallels, I mean, that is just at the heart of, I mean, it just, just smacks you in the face when you, um, you know, you listen to your whistle stop podcast. When you look at um, the book and you think about all this, so which came first? I mean, were you, you did you kind of know and and just you know from your history and and all the sense of political history? I mean, obviously you grew up with it and you've studied it and you've lived it, um, and and you kind of look at what goes on year in year out in each campaign cycle, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, this happened before, and this thing in 1840 is so relevant right now. It's just driving me crazy. Or you know, which which came first, the sense that parallels exist everywhere, or you or the events were occurring and it made you kind of harken back. I think it happened sort of simultaneously. I think the the history, reading history in the middle of political campaigns, is uh, for me, political campaigns are so hard to figure out as they're going on that you sort of. I feel a kind of thirst for a narrative that where you know the ending and where events take place and they lead to the ending, even though, of course, there's lots of debate about whether what we see as signature moments were, in fact, signature moments. But I think then, secondarily, when you're covering a campaign, you're thinking, like, how is this going to play out? You don't have a crystal ball, but history gives you a sense of sort of how things have been in the past and how they've gone forward. And if you if you look at what's the same and different with the past, you might be able to come up with an idea of like, okay, you know, this might happen. So, for example, Donald Trump's going to the convention. There's a tiny little stop Trump movement. There, it doesn't look like they've got enough delegates to overthrow uh, the nomination. But if they're going to try and do it, one way they might try and do it is 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 by staging a rules fight, which they're sort of in the middle of doing. And, and you know that because in 1952 and 1976 and 1980, where there were contested conventions or what I'll just call contested conventions for the sake of conversation, there were always rules, rule fights that, that preceded the ultimate fight on the nominee. Um, and then I think, so, and then what happened, the, the, what happened to me was I started telling these stories that I've always loved um, and the ones with which we're all sort of familiar 
Muskie crying, Reagan grabbing the microphone, Kennedy in could either tell the Wisconsin or West Virginia primary. I've told Wisconsin and West Virginia with an emphasis emphasis on West Virginia. And then it turns out they were more interesting than I ever knew, which was always fun. You know, you find little clips and things that you think, how did I not know about this? How did I, you know, and then, but then I kind of had to keep going. So then I discovered things about campaigns that I didn't really even know anything about, 1840, 1884, and so on. So I just couldn't uh, stop. I'm in the middle of writing one right now about Wilkie, which has all of these parallels. You know, businessman becomes the nominee of the party, was a Democrat a year before, and so on. So um, I think I discover, you know, and then on the other hand, back to your original question, you know, you think Trump, Wallace, like those parallels seem like they're there. And then you go study and you see, you know, where, where there really are a lot of parallels. That was driven more by the campaign than by my just sort of interest in history. So what do you think? I mean, we keep hearing how, you know, this is we've never seen a campaign like this, you know, never a, can, a candidate like Trump. And, uh, you know, I, you know, and actually, this is, of course, literally true, never a uh, woman candidate from one of the major parties, but also, you know, just the sense of the campaign and the way it's, you know, tearing apart the Republican Party and, uh, you know, Republican, you know, senators and leaders or, you know, the Congress, whoever, you know, even down down ticket, you know, needing to support or finding this choice of having to decide whether to support a candidate who's, you know, positions that, you know, differ from, you know, and look at what Paul Ryan has had to go through, you know, differ from yeah. anything that they've, and, and there's this whole sense and, and narrative out there that, that, that this, this campaign is, this is post history and, and, you know, everything is new. And, and I, I just can imagine you hear that or you see that stuff and you're like, no, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not, it's not exact. Yes, we're making new history. Of course we always do, but it's not exactly post history. So is that, is that narrative, off or, or what, what do you think when you when you hear that because obviously you hear it I, as much as I do yeah it's um, I think it's a mix so we've seen when we see candidates who have appealed to the angry electorate um, first of all we've seen that from Pat Buchanan in 92 and 96 yep. but really you know Wallace is Wallace fits the Trump mold in a couple of different ways one the most basic way is here's a guy who, who harness the anger of the disappointed and uh, electorate. And then he was a surprise, right? At first they thought he was kind of a regional candidate. Then he had all of this support in, in the North. That was a, that was a surprise to everybody. And he kind of shook the race. Uh, now he never went anywhere, but there was a period where he was causing both the Republican and the Democratic party to uh, kind of scramble to figure out how to deal with Wallace. So in that sense, and his appeals were very much the same, um, uh, and you know, to his electorate, and the and the, what you heard from voters at the time was very much the same. They would say, "Well, we we like him because he you know tells it like it is." His rallies were equally um, violent. In fact, not equally; they were more violent than than the Trump rally. So, in that sense, when you look at the rally, the the, the riots for Goldwater in '64 and Wallace in '68, the 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 violence at the Trump rallies is actually small by comparison. So in that sense, uh, this is less than what we've seen before. In terms of a candidate who kind of appeals to the crowd and um, does so in a kind of flamboyant circus-like manner, well, that was, you know, you, they can go all the way back to 1840, the first time you had a candidate really campaigning. Um, there was, for a long time, campaigning and, and voting for a political party had nothing to do with issues. In fact, candidates thought it was 
uh, untoward to talk about what they would do in office um, because that was to prejudge it. So they were all about, like, basically they were day-long parties, uh, political rallies. So there's been less, there's been less substantive campaigns um, than we've had. And we've had, you know, Wilkie's a good example, businessmen with no experience in politics running for office. Um, but we've never had a candidate who has personally insulted his opponent himself as regularly and as uh, expertly, by which I mean without getting any sanction for doing so, as Donald Trump. We've had nasty campaigns. People go back to the campaign of 1800 and talk about what, what Adams and Jefferson said about each other, but they didn't say it about each other. They had other people say it for them. What Donald Trump is doing is new in the in the that it's all coming from his mouth. And not just his opponents. I mean, there's there's almost just no short. I mean, even today, that you know, as we're, as we're talking, he was, you know, spent some time on Capitol Hill. And while he was up there, you know, uh, uh, you know, had comments, as you would expect, maybe about Ben Sass, but, uh, you know, also uh, uh, Flake um, and, and others. I mean, he, you know, he, that that's what I mean. That feels that does feel you know to me yeah. a bit post history you know a bit uh, you know new never seen this before um, but you know maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think you know, when you have the Senate Majority Leader of a party say that the party's nominee is not a credible candidate yet, <laughs> <laughs> that's new. When you have the House Speaker rebuke the nominee. I think he's five or six times now that he's rebuked him for things he said. That is totally new. Um, it's not, it's so full stop there in 64, there were a lot of Republicans who came out against Goldwater, um, and they weren't, they weren't the speaker, but there were, you know, a lot of governors, a lot of who held a different kind of power in the party than they do today. Governors were constantly banding together and saying forceful things about their party. They don't do that anymore. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but, um, when Reagan ran against Ford, bunch of governors after a while, after Reagan lost the first, before North Carolina, he lost the first several contests, and the Republican governors got together and said, get out of the race. You're, you know, you're making a mistake. You're, you're hurting the party. Uh, when Goldwater ran, um, I think it was 19 Republican governors meeting in Cleveland in June of 64, basically tried to get him out of the race. Um, and, and not tried to get him out of the race. Said he was bad for the party. He was going to lose the, the, uh, the party, the um, you know, huge amounts of seats and all that. So it wasn't um, as much as we have today, but it was of a similar kind of dispute. Um, although, interestingly, um, Governor Scranton of Pennsylvania, who ran against Goldwater, barely, I mean, Goldwater trounced him, ultimately, nom- you know, ultimately backed him uh, at the convention. So I guess the, the parallel would be if Cruz backed Trump at his convention, which doesn't look like it's going to be happening. So, so let's segue there because you, you mentioned convention and and you mentioned Cleveland. Um, wh- what is going to happen there? Gee, I don't know. I mean, so we have a couple of things. One, the, like can't, putting on a convention is hard to do, just as a matter of uh, putting on a show. Any any complicated four day long party is hard to do. Donald Trump makes it particularly hard. A because a lot of people aren't going, so the roster of speakers is not the familiar standard ones. Why does that matter? Well, A, just the fact that a lot of them won't be there and won't be speaking exacerbates the underlying tension of the fact that there's this disappointment with the nominee among a portion of the party. B, 
when you have people speaking who aren't used to speaking in that kind of venue, they can not do very well. Remember Chris Christie, who was seen as a pretty big national figure. His speech was panned at the 2012 convention. Remember also the empty seat with, uh, with, with Clint with Eastwood, Clint Eastwood yeah, yeah. Uh, talking to an empty seat. Yeah. That was seen as a gambit gone hugely wrong. The gambit was born of the fact that they were trying to be clever and create a moment and, you know, well, that, 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 Im- that impulse will still be there, but there's less structure to um, turn it into a, into, a, into a proper convention. So a lot of moving parts in a convention. So there's just the simple act of getting the thing from A to B, uh, which will be a real challenge and will be interesting to see. The second thing is, what is the party going to look like when it comes through the television screen? Um, and how, because essentially at this point, conventions, although this one will be a little different, but, you know, they're public relations exercises. So what's it going to look like, and is everybody going to be happy with what it looks like? The, and then there's the question of violence in the streets. Will the anarchists show up? Uh, what, just There's that whole, will people overreact to the violence? Will a number of Trump supporters who aren't going to be allowed into the convention hall, will they be there to kind of protect their their man's, image and so forth, and that could create a moment. And you got then on the, there's a question of what the delegates going to do. A lot of them are there, and they're not Donald Trump fans. They are, um, you know, Ted Cruz fans or party regulars who are still unhappy. They may vote for, for Trump in the end, but there is a certain sense of uh, uncertainty, and uncertainty at conventions. You know, they've been trying to squeeze the uncertainty out of conventions since 1980, 1976. So, when you've got, on the one hand, part of the structure trying, hard, trying as hard as possible to remove all serendipity and spontaneity out of the moment, and then you've got these other forces trying to cause it or, or just sort of this other sense of ferment, that's a recipe for at least confusion, if not outright bedlam. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, and there will be some you know, mischief in the rules committee, too, which might cause some uh, moments. Yeah, I'm definitely betting on the on the bedlam side, and and what you're saying is is so true. I mean, you, you can go back, you, you know, these last you know couple of cycles. There's been this whole push, you know, a lot by the networks and and others to you know why even cover the convention? It's just a commercial for the the parties, and and you know even if we cover it, who's going to want to watch it? And you know, I, I end up watching it each year, of course, and and other you know folks who who love this stuff do, but, but, you know, it's just in terms of a, of a spectacle, it's been declining, you know, I don't know, faster than, uh, you know, than the sitcom did in, in the early two thousands. And, and now, you know, this is can't miss. I mean, you know, you, you'll, you gotta go wall to wall coverage, I think certainly on Cleveland, maybe even on Philadelphia to a certain extent. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, this really is in, in all the ways that you've described, um, you can't miss this, right? I mean, don't book a vacation during, um, you know, certainly during the Republican convention. I think that's right. I think, um, I mean, also, by the way, if you're a Republican or a conservative, um, this is a venue. I mean, I, so you're exactly right. And this is a venue for, for a conversation about what you believe. Um, now, it may very well turn into just a bash Hillary and the Democrats fest, which is the one thing that everybody believes and then they can unite on. And if there's this feeling that there has to be a sense of unity, everybody may rally around that. But at some point, politics is about what 
parties believe and what they want to do and what the future is supposed to look like. And you can't build a future on pure antipathy for the alternative when it's a non-incumbent race. You know, when there's an incumbent, you can all hate the incumbent and, and that can sustain you. But this is a jump ball. You know, you, there's a chance to actually pitch what the party believes in, what, why these ideas are going to fix the intractable problems in the country. So there's a chance that Republicans could have a big conversation about what the party believes. The problem is that (laughs) if you do have an open and honest conversation about that, you'll have a number of Republicans, like Ben Sass, saying that the nominee is antithetical to everything the party believes. So, But it'll be exciting to watch all that kind of play itself out. Yeah, that that would be like, you know, the the most awkward, you know, family Thanksgiving dinner conversation, uh, you know, imaginable if they had, if they did have an open. So and then in the historical context, I want to ask you as well about uh, Hillary Clinton, because A, you've mentioned her and B, uh, it turns out there is another candidate running uh, for president as well. Um, From a historical point of view, is this, I mean, you know, can you say, I mean, it's got to be top three. Is this the, you know, craziest, most, you know, unable to be anticipated or, or understood what's going to happen? The most something, fill in, fill in your own adjective. But, but, you know, from a historical point of view, is there anything, you know, in, in a whistle-stop view that you think might compare, gives you some guidance, or um, are we all kind of going forward blind on this one? I think, I mean, um I think we're going forward blind. I think the, the, what I've been thinking about recently is when has there been a race in which the two candidates uh, were as flawed as these two are? And I think, you, I think you have to go back to 1884, where you had two candidates who, were, who had problems like this. So the Democrats had Grover Cleveland, who had fathered a child out of wedlock. There were stories about how um, the, the woman, Maria Halpin, who'd who uh, was the mother of the child was in uh, was in an asylum. The child was put up for orphan, uh, put up as an orphan. She may also have been a dr- drinker. There were allegations that Cleveland raped her. So that's on the Democratic side. And then on the Republican side, you had James G. Blaine, who um, had been Speaker of the House, but was uh, dogged by a variety of different accusations, including one that he'd profited from a relationship with uh, the railroad company. The relationship was. Um, detailed in a number of letters, known as the Mulligan letters, uh, basically through an exchange or in a conversation, Blaine stole his letters back and then basically held on to them, wouldn't let anybody um, see them anymore. And uh, uh, so it's almost, you know, there wasn't an email server involved, but there was definitely a debate over over this private set of correspondence, which showed that he, in fact, had, had been involved in a... Um, in a sort of get-rich scheme with a railroad company that he had helped get a land grant. So he had all kinds of uh, questions about his behavior in office. Um, so that was what the country was facing. Um, and it was, an, it was a very close election, basically came down to the state of New York. Um, and then it took several days to, to determine the vote in, in New York. So I think that's the closest thing I can think of. If you think of, for me, what's the central quality of this election. It is the central quality is that you've got two nominees who are deeply flawed, uh, fighting at a time of high partisanship where the stakes and the unresolved issues, whether it's income inequality, stagnant wages, entitlements, and a dangerous world with at least four or five failing states, 
all those questions are going unresolved. I mean, when the dependent clause is not since 1884 have yeah. we seen. I mean, you, you know that you're you're in some you know pretty pretty new territory. I, I feel like we're living you know almost literally. I think as we're speaking, I, I assume it's still going on though. I'm not sure that that we're living through one of these never before moments right now. Um, I mean, FBI Director James Comey uh, has been testifying to Congress today about Hillary Clinton and you know and the email server and handling of the information and you know and all of that. I mean, it's, it's devastating. I don't know if you, it's pretty devastating stuff. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of it today, but, you know, if you saw the press conference the other day, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a little bit more, you know, more of the same and, and maybe a little bit more. Uh, and, you know, in a normal year, we'd all surely say, this is insurmountable. I mean, you can't have the FBI director say, well, I, I'm not going to criminally charge or, or you know, raise criminal uh, questions because there was not intent. But, you know, essentially, you know, it, the, the judgment here has been criminal. And, you know, you couldn't possibly I mean, he's some of the stuff he's saying today, not to quote it exactly, because I was listening to it in and out. But he basically has said, um, you know, it, it's very hard to imagine that anyone would be able to be employed in the FBI um, handling uh, information the way that, uh, you know, it's been handled here. Um, This is, I mean, this would be insurmountable, wouldn't it, in any, quote, normal year? Yeah, I think it would be insurmountable because it's not the only challenge that Hillary Clinton has to her campaign, you know, so this is already a candidate who has had some, who has some difficulty among them, um, the fact that people are just kind of weary of the Clinton um, family. In the same way they were, uh, or in a similar way, they were weary of the Bush family. Um, so, but but yes, I mean, if, if she weren't facing a candidate who didn't also have a series of trust issues um, and who, I mean, the fact checkers, several different ones, are are searching for new categories to... <laughs> classify the kinds of factual inaccuracies that he engages in repeatedly. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big problem because it's not, it's, it's not only a question of character for both candidates. Um, in other words, how do they behave when nobody's looking? And are they straight with you when everyone's looking? That's the questions of character that are raised by this. Um, but then it's a question of just pure governance. I mean, how are you going to govern when people don't think they can trust you. Um, uh, uh, trust in government's already pretty low, so this seems to be a set of candidates who are who are, who are seeking to, to drive it even further into the basement, as opposed to what we normally expect from in campaigns, which is candidates to lift us out of our current problem. We look for saviors and white knights, and in this case, neither one is that. Now, maybe it's foolish to look for that kind of hope um, in a new candidacy, but Whatever, that's the American uh, way, which is to the triumph of hope over experience. And that's one, the wonderful kind of renewal that happens in every campaign is that people think, you know, we have a certain standard and a set of expectations and affection for our country that allows us and, in fact, inspires us to be hopeful every four years that a person can come along and then through a sense of common conversation, we can kind of get ourselves out of the fix we're in or at least prepare for the future. That's not happening in this campaign at all. It's really, um, you know, in 1988, people hated that campaign, and uh, Newsweek ended at the end of that campaign and said, you know, this was an enjoyable campaign. 
if you thought this was an enjoyable campaign, you're probably the kind of person who likes to see oil slicks wash up on the beach. Um, <laughs> but in that campaign, which where the Bush team was quite negative, obviously defined Dukakis. Dukakis, at least, he didn't really punch back. It's one of the reasons he lost. But at least he was trying to say, here's my uplifting message for the future. In this case, no, neither campaign is doing that. I mean, each campaign is trying to make the, the, the race a referendum on their on their opposite. And so that that's that's just a recipe for uh, a pretty depressing race. Yeah, it's such a thoughtful point and such an important question. I mean, you, you, you're totally right. Um, and you're kind of freaking me out. I mean, does it, does it, does it, does it does, I mean, it's got to, I mean, you know, as an American, as someone who cares, you know, obviously to the level that, that you do, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I can't compare the levels that we both care, but I mean, I care deeply, obviously as well. Um, that's, that's a bad thing. I mean, that, that's kind of a problem. No, it is. And it is a problem. And then the, the thing, studying the history has been really helpful in, um, in kind of thinking through your original question, which is what's different here, and 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 it's helped me to kind of, you know, focus on well, what's different here is you've got two candidates who are neither of whom is offering really at, at the, you know, at the bottom, the central thing of the campaign is not hope and uplift. Of course, they will say things that will try to kindle those feelings, but that that's not the reality of where this campaign is heading, and that is. Um, really grim because you have you people already don't think that the government addresses the near, their needs and problems and so this will only reinforce that um and there are plenty of needs and problems that need addressing so um it's not like we have a you know things are so fine that we can um can uh, kind of have one kind of election that doesn't go so well because we'll all be okay so after getting painting such a dark picture then the question is can those can, are there people who will break out of this? I mean, is this a moment? Is this an acute moment in which either the voters or the or the lawmakers say, "No more. We're going to. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're going to." And I don't know how that happens, or who does that. But um, it like it seems to me the only only next step. Um, and I I don't I don't really know how that's going to happen. But hopefully, I think what gives me hope. Um, is that if you just keep trying to surface the questions, keep pointing out how far we've slipped from a standard that we used to have, um, that maybe will lead to some kind of collective conversation about how we got here, why we're here, and how to fix it. Yeah, and, uh, you're right, and it really is an opportunity. And I, you know, as as you know, uh, frustrated as one can get, um, I like you. It sounds like. Um, am ever hopeful about uh, you know the American experience and about the you know about the process and about where in the end uh, everything you know things will end up eventually and it it really you know it it does create an unbelievable opportunity um, you know for a leader or a set of leaders um, to kind of you know help start generating that conversation maybe it'll come from the people I mean you know in in the uh, social media age the ability for uh, you know, anyone to kind of get their voice heard if, uh, you know, you know, you, you can you can get out there. Um, you know, there, you're right. There There is a, a new opportunity. Um, and maybe, you know, so to and to segue it just a little bit back to uh, 
um, to whistle stop. Uh, maybe one of the uh, you know examples or something will come out of history. And as I was listening to the podcast and thinking about the book, um, you know, which came first in your mind? I mean, did you did you always know there would be a book? I mean, one of the the really cool things about uh, the, your podcast is the way you integrate um, you know the the audio of the time. Um, I mean, you don't actually, you know, have audio of the 1884 uh, letters, you know, being read at that period. I think that was, you know, you just could have done a little more digging on that and maybe, you know, even <laughs> though <laughs> gotten that. But but I mean, it's a it's a really neat component of uh, of those podcasts. So did, did you did the book come first in your mind? Did the podcast come first? How, how did all that work out? No, the podcast just um, came first. It was formed basically on the same <laughs> with the same lack of planning and sense of um, experimentation that the plate Gabfest was formed, which was basically an effort to re- an effort to replicate the conversations we were having on the way to the uh, to get lunch every day. I, I, um, I thought you were going to say, like, it, it, you know, that replicates that as everything else in your life. Is I thought where that was <laughs> where that was going. Um, so we, you know, we just thought, okay, well, we'll do this. There's a low barrier to entry, and we'll see if anybody listens, and they did. And so in the same way, I went to Andy Bowers at Slate and said, hey, I had these stories. I like doing this. It's an election year. Why not try it? And I was bouncing along um, just doing it as a podcast, and uh, and a friend said, you know, you should make this book, and various people who listened um, said the same thing. And... Um, uh, so I thought, well, that's kind of crazy because there's not much time um, to do it in an election year. But fortunately, my agent is a, uh, a, stout, is a, is a hearty soul. And, um, and the editor at, uh, at 12, uh, Sean Desmond, is, who's just great, um, and my agent, um, Tina Bennett, they were both game for it. And it required, you know, a moving a little faster than the normal uh, production schedules. And what I didn't know at the beginning and probably wouldn't have had I known it going in, I might not have done it, but I thought that the, the audio, that the podcast would be kind of, the chapters would flow pretty easily from them. But the problem is that um, the podcast was conversational. It's based on, you know, my readings and, and, and looking at the newspapers at the time and a lot of research, but not anything close to the research you have to do for a book or would want to do for a book. So even though there were pod, so I wrote, two entirely new chapters that have never been done in the podcast. But then even, um, even though uh, I, the other 17 chapters have started out as podcasts, they're, the podcasts are probably only, you know, 20 to 40% of the, of the chapter. So there's a heck of a lot, heck of, a lot of work in the end. Yeah, well, it's a good thing that you didn't know uh, everything that would be required ahead of time. Um, it, yeah, I mean, exactly. it feels like it, it must hit a, a nerve positively. It must hit it. I mean, the, I think there's got to be this longing. I mean, I feel it. Um, I, I assume others do this longing for some type of historical context. You know, when you, when you, when on the one hand, you feel like we're, you, you're going into uncharted territory and what's the future of the country and we've never seen this and we've never seen that and people, you know, and the implosion of one of the two major parties and, and attacks and, and I mean, you know, and then you see stuff like Brexit and there's, there's a sense like, whoa, what, what's going on in the world today? Um, historical context provides a little bit of a of a mooring i think and i think there you know i actually I, I think you've hit on something and your timing really might be you know just exactly 
right that in a time of great unknown and uncertainty um, to be able to look back and say, well, you know, wait a minute, there was 1884, there was, you know, 1988, there, you know, there, there was, you know, Ford and Reagan. Um, I think, I think you're, you're, you know, you're certainly onto something. I think it can, can provide, uh, you know, something really for people to, to grab hold on to. Um, is that, have you gotten that feedback? Is that part of what, uh, you know, has inspired you? You know, it, it actually, as you say that, it, it, um, I, I, I like everything I'm hearing because um, I, I think, so I, I've gotten r- tremendous feedback, um, and I've kind of wondered why, like, where's it coming from? What's the, um, you know, what, what, where, why are people so into this? Um, and I think it's, I think you've hit on it, which is, um, it gives, so Teddy White wrote in, one of his books. I don't know if it was America in Search of Itself or one of the individual um, making of the president books, but he talked about elections as a way people take control of their life, um, of the of their national affairs, and that always, that makes sense to me because it, um, based on all the conversations I've had with voters over the course of time, um, it gives you it, it helps you understand why they take elections so seriously because it gives them either control or they want more control in their lives um, than they have, and, and that gives you a sense of what, where their urgency comes from. So if the, if the election is out of control, what history does do for you, sometimes directly, sometimes only indirectly, is it lets you know we've been here before, or we've gotten through things before, or um, it just gives you that sense of control back a little bit. And so that would explain... If that's all true, and I think you're probably right that that it that it is, then then it would explain why this is more than just a book of fun stories, you know, it's a, um, or important stories, because it, it it helps you feel like a time of chaos is is even though it may still be chaotic, in previous times of chaos chaos things have been okay, um, and that that is at the end that's a hopeful message in a time where things might not look so hopeful. And that uh, leads me to, you know, uh, to, to close things out. You, you subtitled Whistle Stop, my favorite stories from presidential campaign history. Uh, given, given what we're seeing now, um, and, you know, you already have a, a great agent, you said, so, you know, I'm not auditioning for any role here. Um, but, but have you already been signed up for the sequel? I mean, at the least, you're going to need a new afterward, right? <laughs> well, it's quite a good point on the afterward. Um, you know, uh, I really hope I get to to do a sequel because um, uh, the the there are a couple of things that would make me want to do that. First of all, there are a bunch of um, stories that I've told that I didn't put in the book. For example, I, I went through a little period about 1992, um, and I mean one of my favorite stories is about the town hall debate that happened for the first time in the 1992 race. You remember that? That's the one where George Bush looked at his watch. Ross Perot has a bunch of wonderful answers in that. Bill Clinton practiced in what was essentially a facsimile of the room um, at his hotel. It was an, it's a great story, but I already had 1992 uh, Clinton's comeback in New Hampshire, so I thought, I don't want this to turn into a book about 1992. So I'd love, to, I'd love for that to get out into the world. Um, and also that's, you know, the sort of the member of the guy who stood up with the ponytail at that town hall. I mean, there's so much going on. Anyway, there, there are about six of those chapters already done. And so I'd love to be able to get those out. Also, 1968, all I did was um, Wallace. I mean, 
No, I've, I haven't read anything about the Democratic Convention in 1968. You could, I mean, people have written entire books on that. Nothing about Nixon and his dirty tricks group campaign, although I write about the Muskie crying, which is about, yeah. which is a part, you know, was initiated by Nixon's dirty tricks. But um, I haven't done anything about the 1960 Democratic debate. So there's so many moments, sorry, not Democratic debate, but 1960 debates. There's so many fantastic moments that I would, I would want to write about. And, and, you know, as much as this may work with listeners and readers, it's really helpful to me because it helps me, not only gives me a sense of control, but it helps me figure out when I'm looking at politics today, the questions I ask, the things I'm thinking about are informed not just by what the candidates are saying in the world we live in, but also hopefully some set of what, what's the standard? How, do we, how are we supposed to behave? What are elections supposed to be about? Um, and that we should probably always try and figure out what the standard is and then hold candidates to that so we don't lapse into some crazy relativism, which is in part what we're going to do in this campaign, because you've got each candidate saying, well, you know, you may think what I did was wrong, but the other guy's even more wrong. Um, and, if, you know, you can, relative, you can be so relative that you kind of lose your bearings. So I really hope people like it enough that we can get another one uh, launched. This is one of my um, really favorite things to do when I'm not uh, doing my job. <laughs> well, you, your job seems to, uh, you know, certainly extend into, into all parts of your life. John Dickerson is moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, a Slate political col- columnist, host of the Whistle Stop podcast, and author of the... Uh, so you can order the book now, isn't that right? I guess it, it gets... It, the official date is August 2nd, but there's no reason that uh, we have to wait till then to, to order. You, we, can, we can order dozens of copies uh, right now. Is that correct? That's exactly right. You can order them uh, right away. I, I mean, fact, really, I would no, encourage people to do so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no limits, right? I mean, they, we're, I'm not right. limited. No, no, to no them. limits at all. In fact, uh, you know, you might as well just just keep ordering, uh, really, until the keys <laughs> on your computer break. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I would. I, it's very frightening seeing it up there on the on the Amazon and other book uh, sites because it, you know, that means it's out in the world. So yeah. It's, it's out there. You know, it's also just a, one, one final note. I apologize. I mean, you know, breaking every rule, you know, shouldn't build a uh, close to a conversation and then make one other point. Um, but it just it strikes me if you do th- as you do think about the future. I mean, you, you're an incredible, you know, your CBS, um, you know, relationship now. The, the examples that you talked about, I mean, the 1960 uh, presidential debate, that first debate with Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the, you know, that was Don Hewitt who went on to. Yeah. Uh, um, create 60 Minutes. And in 1968, you can't see any video of that um, without seeing uh, the young Dan Rather. So you, you certainly sit on an archive of, uh, you know, just incredible, uh, you know, political history. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I think, uh, you know, memo to your agent. Um, you know, in fact, you may want to sign up the sequel, uh, you know, before, uh, um, no need to find out the results of the first book before you, uh, right. you know, sign up. <laughs> Sign up for the other. before we do it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I wish I, uh, you know, maybe I can swing that. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it would be uh, it would be great. There's a lot, lot. There are a lot more stories to tell, and you're right about the video. Every time I see um, video of these races or of these moments, I think like how how is this not on television all day long? It's so fascinating, and there are things that are so. I mean, the 1976 convention, right in the middle of this fight. Uh, between Reagan and Ford, the Mississippi delegation gets together and holds their meeting in a CBS trailer um, to, to try and or figure out a 
problem, which I won't bore you with. But it's just this great moment of television. You've got the CBS, you've got Mike Wallace standing out in front of the trailer saying, well, the whole Mississippi delegation is in there, and they've, they've commandeered our trailer. And, um, and you, it's just a great moment of live television. Um, Leslie Stahl is on the air the minute Bush gets chosen as Reagan's number two in the two-day period that everybody thought it might be Ford, when there was this extraordinary moment where Ronald Reagan was going to pick the previous president as his vice president. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of great footage out there that, um, that is really fun to watch uh, with the, the distance of history behind you. Yeah, uh, it, there, there sure is. Well, uh, anyhow, John, thank you. Uh, thanks for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Sure, thank you. It was really fun. And there it was. That was my conversation with John Dickerson. Like I said, um, an incredible political resource, a terrific storyteller. Um, that's a really, really great combination. Um, my thanks again to John for making the time and sharing those stories. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Mm-hmm.